Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky show. As I speak, it is Wednesday, July 26, uh, 2023. Here's a headline uh, from today's New York Times. This one here, you know, it just strains all credibility uh, in this insane political time. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, the legal brains, ha ha ha, between, behind Donald Trump's attempt to find a cook up, a sh- I should say, a legal justification for the coup uh, that he attempted uh, in January of 2021 to keep uh, Joe Biden from taking over uh, as president, even though Joe Biden won the election. Rudy Giuliani admits that he made up a bunch of sh- uh, stuff, just a bunch of a gobbledygook about uh, a clerk in the um, Secretary of State's office in Georgia, election official, uh, and uh, that woman and her mother have sued Giuliani. Uh, and so as part of a defamation lawsuit, excuse me, my microphone just fell, as part of a, a part of a defamation lawsuit, uh, there's, they're heading into discovery. And so Rudy Giuliani says, oh, yeah, I did make it up uh, after all, but uh, oh, well, uh, I'm protected by the First Amendment. <laughs> A lot of scoundrels are protected by that First Amendment, ladies and gentlemen. Rudy Giuliani, uh, they just made it up as they went along, ladies and gentlemen. And the staggering thing is that so many Americans still believe them. So many Americans still believe that somehow or other uh, Joe Biden stole the election from Donald Trump, a complete fabrication. Uh, and I, I don't know what percentage of Americans actually believe that, but I think it's like 35 to 40 percent. And here's the interesting thing. This is the at I, is, I don't know what if to say it's scarier, but the like adult people in the Republican Party, I don't know if that even if there are any adults in the Republican Party anymore, uh, but they presumably don't believe that the election was stolen, but they're too scared to say it's a fabrication because their party is controlled by a cult. 
that believes. <laughs> it's so weird. It's like, what's the difference then, America? Seriously, what's the difference between a politician who actually believes something that isn't true and a politician who's scared to say that something that isn't true isn't true? Well, there you go. That's a philosophical question for another time. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Uh, and we can have a conversation on a topic having nothing to do with what I just uh, was talking about, although there is kind of a connection. Without further ado, distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Thanks, Ben. Uh, I'm Gordon Mantler. I'm the uh, executive director of the University Writing Program uh, and a professor of writing and history at George Washington University in D.C. Yes, and uh, he is the author of a book called The Multiracial Promise, Harold Washington, Chicago, and the Democratic Struggle in Reagan's America. Uh, and as anybody who has uh, listened to this show uh, read, knows, or if you've read my column, you know, I am utterly obsessed with Harold Washington. It's an obsession, uh, Gordon Mantler, that uh, developed from the moment I saw Harold Washington and talked to Harold Washington uh, in the early 80s and continues to this day. Um, as a longtime Chicagoan who follows obsessively Chicago politics, in my humble opinion, I don't even think there's any question about this. Harold Washington is the greatest mayor the city of Chicago has. Before we get into uh, the details of your book, why you wrote the book, the lessons you learned from writing the book, et cetera, and so forth, do you agree with my premise that Harold Washington is the greatest mayor the city of Chicago has ever had. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think the big question is, is what would have happened if he had actually uh, served for 20 years, like he had predicted, right? Rather than four and a half. And uh, um, I think so much of the story about Harold is, is, is not only what he was able to accomplish in the short amount of time and, and just what a feat it was to build this coalition. Um, but uh, the, the potential that we'll just never know what would have uh, happened if he had, had lived, you know, past uh, November, 1987. But uh, yeah, without a question. I mean, I, you know, I have some high hopes for Brandon Johnson, but um, you know, I think, I think he has large shoes to fill and a, and a, uh, um, huge legacies to, uh, to, to, to pass, you know, in terms of Harold, um, for sure. Well, um, the, uh, with there, and there are parallels, which we'll get into between, uh, the Harold Washington election in 83 and the Brandon Johnson, uh, victory this year. The reason I say Harold Washington is the greatest mayor of the city of Chicago has ever had, uh, is because until Brandon, he was the only mayoral candidate who directly confronted the issues of race and inequity uh, head on without running away from them, without pretending like Rahm and Daly pretended they didn't exist. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, to uh, a lesser degree, pretended they didn't exist. She concentrated on, quote unquote, reform as an issue, cleaning up Chicago, cleaning up corruption in Chicago. But Harold Washington not only focused on it, but then there was the backlash against him as all the worst fears white people had about black people were used to motivate folks to vote against them. So he had no choice, Gordon. He absolutely had to confront, even if he didn't want to, he had to, you know what I mean? And then uh, the resistance he met from white people who were just so insane, they could not, like, 
they could not in their heart allow a black man to be in charge. Uh, and the way he stood up to it, I just, to me, his, his strength in the face of so much hate and opposition just, um, and it just speaks to his greatness. That's why I say it. Your thoughts about that? Yeah, no, no, I would agree. I mean, the, the yeah, the remarkable, um, vitriol that he faced throughout, um, the campaign and his, his administration, uh, on the second campaign, uh, um, was remarkable. And yet he, he, you know, that, that's the thing is that I mean, he was a really special politician. He could walk in any room and like win the room over. Um, didn't mean that those folks were going to vote for him later on. Um, but uh, he, he was a really special politician in terms of his, uh, his ability to connect with people and, and to take on tough issues, right? Um, as you said, and he was always, I mean, you know, he, I think we, we forget he was a, he was a machine politician. He comes out of the machine uh, in the 60s and 70s, but he was always as, as independent as he could be and still stay within those confines uh, and use those resources uh, when he could until he finally breaks with the, the machine in the 70s. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, uh, he, I think you're right. He was forced to um, engage with these issues, part because he ran on them. Those were his campaign promises, but it was also just it, the response of uh, by many white and not all white, but 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 many most white Chicagoans uh, to the the the, uh, the chance that a black man was going to become mayor. Um, he had to deal with this stuff head on. And I think what was interesting, and you know, I write about this in the book and the story. Um, that Helen Schiller shared with me uh, about just his, his deep disappointment in 87 that, okay, he's been mayor for four years. He demonstrated that the, the sky would not fall if, uh, when he was mayor, that he, <laughs> that he was going to be a competent administrator of the city, even if he was going to take on some, you know, major issues in, uh, in terms of race and class Um and yet the remarkable um, white supremacy and racism that that uh, reared its ugly head in that 87 primary against Byrne and then the general against Ferdoliak, um, you know, just kind of left him shaking his head. It's like, I, you know, what do I have to do to win these folks over, you know, and, and you know. Uh, no, and, and I just want to say this. Uh, I, I, oh my goodness! You, this is such a like this conversation is such like a, as the millennials say a triggering thing for me because it just brings back so many memories, Gordon. But uh, I always thought that the '87 reelection, uh, white people in Chicago, and you're absolutely correct. It's not every single white person, you know, not every single white person, but the vast majority of them never were so pathetic, pathetic because. All Harold Washington did for four years was deliver promises on the basic services that you love. The trains ran on time. The streets got paved. The police answered the calls when you called them. The firefighters went out and put the fires. Everything continued to happen, and you still wouldn't vote for him. I am not going to vote for him. I'm a white person. And, like, these white politicians openly battle each other, Gordon, for the be like the white person. 
to be running against Harold because the notion if you have two white people in the race, they'll divide up the white vote and Harold will win. And so they would fight among themselves. Like, it's like they openly fight. No, I'm more qualified as a white person than you are. More white people will vote for me. You guys are pathetic, Chicago. You are pathetic. Okay, there's just nothing else I can say. They should teach that in the high schools, how pathetic white people are in Chicago, at least in 1987. All right. Uh, Sorry about that rant. I told you it's a very triggering thing for me, Gordon. Um, So, all right. I have my strong, passionate feelings about this stuff uh, because of my upbringing. And I'm not going to put myself on the couch, but I am going to put you on the couch. So you're not from Chicago. You're a white guy. You're you were writing this. You started when you were got, ladies and gentlemen. Don't hold it against them at Duke, uh, <laughs> uh, studying history. What do you care about Chicago and Harold Washington? Why did you care about Chicago and Harold Washington? Go. All right, it's a, it's it's a bit of a complicated answer here, but so so bear with me. So so one, I I'm the not from Chicago. You're right. I am the the grandson of two. Um, small town Midwesterners uh, who moved to Chicago, common story in the 30s. Well, my grandfather in the late 20s, my grandmother in the early 30s. Um, they met, um, got married, had my aunt, um, and uh, then moved east and had my mom um, in Maryland. Uh, but my grandfather lived with us when I was a teenager, like at the end of his life, right, for like seven years. And he couldn't not talk about the city. Even though it had been 50 years before, he talked about Chicago all the time. He loved the city. He loved his time there. Um, and it kind of planted a bit of a seed. And it's like, oh, I want to know more about this place. I don't live here. I live, you know, I grew up outside of Baltimore. Um, but uh, so I, I credit my grandfather um, to a certain extent about my, you know, some of my kind of just base personal interest in the city. Um, my first book is about uh, the Poor People's Campaign of 1968. So Dr. King's last campaign when he was, uh, you know, before he was assassinated in Memphis. Um, but to really understand the, that campaign that happened here in D.C. in that spring, um, you have to go back a few years and think about, you know, really when the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, his organization, first kind of um, makes its first major foray outside of the South. Um, of course, there's a there's a vibrant freedom struggle going on in Chicago well before King gets there. Um, and so he's kind of stepping into a space that he doesn't fully understand, to be honest. But um, he's invited by Al Raby and a few other folks. And uh, I become really interested in, in both the freedom movement, but also uh, some of these individuals that, that, that King interacts with. And uh, um, I, I'm in the Harold Washington Library. I come across... Um, I, I think it's somewhere along the line, I'm like, you know, I'm going to look at some of the materials around that Harold Washington campaign uh, because it's been it, it comes up on occasion in oral histories and in other places um, connecting the 60s to the early 80s. And sure enough, um, looking in the Merrill campaign records in the reading room um, upstairs in the in the central library, um, and there's a document. Uh, it's an essay. It doesn't look like it's ever been published. I never found it, it published anywhere. But it was written by Al Raby, who, of course, uh, comes back to Chicago. Uh, he is the second campaign manager for Harold um, that winter of 83. And uh, the essay is called The Meaning of the Harold Washington Campaign. 
And in it, he just he makes a direct link between uh, that campaign and its multiracial uh, character uh, and um, makeup uh, with the Poor People's Campaign and the work that Dr. King was doing in the late '60s, uh, mid and late '60s, both in Chicago but nationally when it came to the to the Poor People's Campaign. Um, and so, you know, I end up mentioning that. Um, essay at the end of my, in an epilogue of my first book. Um, and, uh, but th- again, the seed was planted. I'm like, you know, I really want to, I want to know more about Harold. I remember when he was elected, I was a kid, um, but it was national news. Um, I didn't follow it uh, very much, but um, I remembered it. And uh, I was like, you know, I, I, I want to learn more about Harold. And um, I've always been fascinated by, the potential of multiracial coalition work in Chicago, whether it's Fred Hampton's first rainbow coalition or other efforts, you know, by the SELC to get Puerto Rican, um, uh, Puerto Ricans uh, fresh off of the division straight uprisings in 1966 to become involved in the freedom movement to uh, other efforts. Right. And um, so, you know, I ended up starting to read more and more about Harold and, and, and frankly, being somewhat unsatisfied with like what had been written. A lot has been written, but a lot has been written about the campaign itself um, without, uh, and, and sort of as this climactic moment, without thinking through the challenges of governing um, and also the relationship I see as uh, between social movements and electoral politics. Um, there's no question that Harold uh, builds a campaign that becomes a movement. But um, to govern, those movements still have to be as active and they have to keep you know, uh, elected politicians as accountable as they did um, during the campaign. Um, and I think that uh, the challenge, I think, for a lot of activists um, and something I argue in the book is that don't want to criticize the first black mayor too much even when he's not able to accomplish a lot of the things he wants to accomplish, because that often gives ammunition to the wrong people and to his opponents. So, you know, the police department doesn't do that. The police department doesn't really change under Harold, right? Despite the appointment of Fred Rice as the first black superintendent, the housing authority doesn't really change very much, even though Renault Robinson, a close ally is uh, the head of it. Uh, the Board of Health, right? There's a number of different, you know, examples where um, uh, Harold is not able to achieve, you know, what he wants to. And, and of course, a lot of that has to do with the council wars and the remarkable white supremacy um, by the Verdoliac 29. Uh, that included Ed Burke, one of your friends, I'm, I know. Um, and, uh, but, but there was other things going on as well, right? The, I think the the coalition is a coalition. It, it's fragile. Uh, and uh, the dysfunction of some of the institutions in the city, you know, the housing authority, the police department, as I said, um, uh, the you know, many other sort of city agencies and the way they operated uh, because they operated in one particular way uh, under the machine. And so uh, trying to get these spaces to like work differently um, took a lo- took a while. And while you start seeing some of that changing, Rob Mears development, you know, department, for instance, um, uh, when Harold passes away 
and there's the fight over who's going to become the acting mayor and, and Gene Sawyer becomes it, you know, it's, um, much of the momentum and the political capital and this, the, the bonding together of that coalition really frays, as you know. And then, of course, uh, Richie uh, becomes mayor two years later. So it's all to say that, um, yeah, I had, I'm, I really got to Harold through my research of the, on the 60s. I would say one more thing, though. I also, this is, this is the period, I'm wrapping up this book. I'm starting to think about what's my next project. Um, Barack Obama is in his first you know, term. And I, and I can't help but think that there, there was just some parallels between what I saw in terms of um, a lot of folks super excited that Barack becomes the first black president um, and then go about, go back into their business and sort of, business as usual, going back to whatever they were doing before um, and sort of the complacency that can set in. It's like, okay, my guy's in power now. I don't have to worry about it. Um, And I think that that's really common. And it happens on both sides. I think it happens on both right and left. Um, But I think we're particularly vulnerable on the left um, to take uh, for granted that, okay, the right person got in. We don't have to do that hard work of keeping them accountable and keeping, you know, keeping them, um, uh, res- you know, keeping them responsible for, for the promises that they had made earlier. Right. Um, and so I was like, you know, what it, I, I found it fascinating. And, and I think that the, the Obama administration and were, was complicit in some of this and that they weren't that interested in what the grassroots had to say after they were in power. Um, and it doesn't mean that it, they didn't accomplish things uh, that were of interest to the left, uh, including healthcare to a certain extent. But um, while watching the how this administration was operating uh, and then reading about this history 30, 40 years later, um, it was really striking some of the parallels. They're not exactly the same. I don't want to say that they're the same, but but there were some parallels there. Oh, okay. So you've given me a lot to follow I up know. on. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. It's good. Uh, and I, I dutifully took notes to follow up on them. Uh, so there's contrast with Barack Obama. I definitely want to uh, go into that. Um, I will push back with you a little bit about the notion of accomplishments for Harold Washington. Uh, I I know you said, you pointed out that he was uh, he faced... Uh, fierce resistance, to put it mildly, uh, by the Act Burke 29. And just so uh, younger listeners who may not know this, uh, as soon as Harold Washington was uh, was victorious as mayor, uh, almost after he, within the week after he was sworn in, uh, the uh, 28 uh, white aldermen and uh, one Puerto Rican alderman co- joined forces behind Eddie Verdoliak and Ed Burke. Yes, the same Ed Burke, who was the finance chair that uh, your favorite mayors, Chicago, uh, Emanuel and Daly thought was a good idea to put in charge of finance. He's now facing uh, federal corruption charges. Good choice, Chicago. Uh, That Burke and Verdoliak joined forces and they fought Harold Washington at every step of the way, not just on budgets, but on appointments. He, they would try. They would not approve his appointments. Uh, they were resisting. They made it clear that they wanted to sabotage Chicago government just enough 
uh, to convince people that it was not worth it to have Harold Washington as mayor in 1987. They would reject Harold Washington. So I find it in a moment like that very difficult to hold Harold Washington accountable for what he didn't accomplish because (laughs) he couldn't even get like his budget through without negotiations. It was a completely different uh, uh, time. So I push back there. Um, Your point, though, about the contrast to Barack and Harold is one I would love uh, for you to to dive into a little more. Uh, Harold ran as a black candidate. So when he won to get to that uh, to City Hall, he first had to consolidate the black vote in Chicago by getting black people in Chicago to believe something that no one thought was possible, that a black man could be elected as mayor of city of Chicago. And once he achieved that, then he had to like <laughs> get that handful of white people who were willing, just enough white people, like the handful Gordon, okay? The Gordon Mantlers of their time. I know you were you didn't live in Chicago, but just imagine you, Gordon, if you lived in Chicago. You, you would be like on our block. You would be for Harold, and maybe your wife would be for Harold, and eight people on your block would be against him just because he's Harold. So just enough to get Barack Obama, man, he won Iowa with white people, and then all of a sudden, black America woke up. My God. White people are going to vote for this guy. It was the exact opposite, in my humble opinion. Uh, And it just shows in so many ways the difference between Harold Washington and his background and Barack Obama and his background uh, as a child of an integrated couple uh, growing up in Hawaii. Your thoughts? <laughs> well, as I, I tried to throw the caveat out there that I didn't, that I, I see some parallels, but but I don't want to take it too far. And of course, the book doesn't f- spend uh, most of the book is not really about this um, this analogy. It is definitely one of the things that that shaped my thinking when I was writing, uh, and why I you know when I when I took on the the project in the first place, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I think one thing I wanted to, to point out about that coalition is you're right. Convincing African-Americans that, yes, I can actually win. Um, and it was the number one thing that Harold uh, had to do. And it was the first thing he had to do. Um, but he, you know, and then winning, uh, finding those white voters who are willing to vote for him. But Latinos are really important here. Um, and I think I don't I don't want that to be lost in terms of the coalition, um, especially in the general election against Bernard Epton, uh, where 78 percent of Latinos vote uh, for Harold. Almost the it's not quite, but it's like, you know, in the 45,000 or so. And I, I can't remember the exact numbers off, off the top of my head. That is the difference between Harold and and. Epton um, is the is the Latino vote, and and then a handful of white votes, right? I think you have to have all that coalition. If 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 one part of that coalition wasn't there, he doesn't win. If one part of that coalition isn't there uh, in the in the uh, primary, he doesn't win, right? Um, and so it's, that's one of the reasons why um, I I pursued this is because I really thought that. 
um, that part of the story was kind of underplayed. It's mentioned like Gary Rivlin mentions it in his biography of, of Harold. Um, it comes up in some of the other, you know, literature about his campaign, but uh, I thought it was underplayed too much and that, yeah, I mean, Latinos are voting at, lo- at lower numbers, right. The, in, t- in terms of turnout. Um, but uh, there are those who do turn turn out um, overwhelmingly supported Harold in that April, in April of eighty three, and I so I don't want us to to lose that. But you're you know, but you're but you're right. I mean, uh, you know, um, <laughs> uh, again, I don't want to draw too many direct lines between the Harold moment and, and Barack because I I think it's it, they're very twisty lines, right? David Axelrod covers the 83 campaign, becomes then the consultant for, for Harold in 87, uh, but learns a lot from that era in terms of um, how do you sell um, an African-American candidate to, um, uh, to a multiracial uh, electorate. Um, and, and so, you know, if you read his, his memoir, of course, he spends a lot of time talking about those lessons uh, that he you know, from the 80s and early 90s and um, applying it to uh, 2008. Um, but I mean, I do think that there's still something to be said about um, the remarkable vitriol that Barack Obama faced by Republicans, you know, whether it's the infamous comment by Mitch McConnell that my goal is not to govern, <laughs> not to find common ground, right? But to, to make sure that uh, Obama was a one-term president. Um, but also, uh, you know, j- just the, the, the remarkable, uh, what, the shouting out at the State of, State of the Union address by, by Joe Wilson of South Carolina, um, all, all of those kinds of moments, right? That uh, no uh, white president had seen and witnessed before from the opposition of either party. Uh, and so I, th- those were some of the things. And then the other, just, I would say, you know, the people that I knew, the folks that, you know, that supported um, Brock and campaign for him, um, most of whom went back to their lives, right? Raising their kids, their, you know, going to work or what have you um, and following what was going on, but, but not, um, you know, staying on top of, uh, you know, going to town halls and pushing for uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, when those were happening in in early 2010, um, not doing that kind of work. And so, and I, and I would say again, like the, the, the kind of the, reluctance to be too critical of Obama because it seemed like all it would do is help the opposition. Well, and I, I, that is the, that's what I found when I would talk with people in oral histories and in the, and the, you know, newspaper coverage and other sources uh, for the book is that there was a, a, a hesitancy to like critique Harold too much or the administration too much because of the fear that it actually would be used against them, right? And so, the, and so it's a catch. You know, you kind of it's a catch twenty two there. Um, and so he, the, the benefit of, he's given the benefit of the doubt. But you, you know, you're, you're, there's no question that, um, and I think I document quite well. Much is accomplished, 
And, and, and I think, and this is speculative and historians don't usually speculate too much about what would have happened, but I think a lot more would have been accomplished if he had lived. We don't know. Right. And that's one of the big question marks. And, and sometimes I think also one of the reasons why Harold is held in the, kind of the, the, the way he is, is that we just, we don't know, you know, he's kind of in that same category as, as Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and other folks who are cut her kill, you know, killed um, or, di- or die. Um, and we don't know what else that they would have accomplished, but we think they would have accomplished more. Yeah. Yeah, I um, uh, I'm thinking now, uh, listening to you more about uh, this differences between uh, Harold Washington and Barack Obama, and uh, so Harold Washington, ladies and gentlemen, it's all uh, laid out in the multiracial uh, promise Gordon Mantler's book about Harold Washington's uh, time in Chicago as mayor and as a candidate for mayor. Uh, but Harold Washington's challenge, as I said already earlier. Uh, was con- to uh, convince uh, black people in Chicago uh, that he could get elected and then get elected with the overwhelming uh, majority of their uh, vote and support. And then he faced this enormous white resistance from the get-go. Uh, Barack Obama and his uh, allies that uh, were running his campaign and thinking about his campaign. But I I, I give the credit to Barack Obama because I see this, the evidence of this going way back uh, to the 90s in some of his writings. Barack Obama thought that he could improve, in my humble opinion, on Harold Washington, that Harold Washington made a strategic mistake, that Harold Washington allowed himself to be too closely affiliated with black people and that you could not run in a multicultural environment and be too black. And so he wanted to take Harold Washington's success and put it on a national level. Uh, and so his most famous, that famous speech he gave at the Democratic, Harold Washington's famous speech was, it's our turn. Like, it's our turn. We've been discriminated. We've been put down. We've been marginalized. We got the short end of the stick, the crumbs of the pie. Now it's our turn. We want the whole pie. That was his. What was Barack Obama in 2004? There is no blue America. There is no red America. Wait a minute. That's not what I know in Chicago. <laughs> there is a blue America in Chicago. He, he, and you know what, Gordon? I think he actually, he and Rom and, and Axelrod and all that crowd of his, they actually, they may have fallen. They had to know in the back of their minds that it wasn't true what he was saying, but they kind of believed it. And so when they come into office, they're like, well, I guess got elected. White people voted for me. I'm, I could just be like any old white president. Uh-uh. <laughs> they won't even vote for health care. You know what I'm saying, Gordon? And then as soon as you get health care in, they're going to fight you every bit away, separate away. You're right. It's straight out of the Verdoliak Burke playbook. You are absolutely correct. It was straight out. It was like Mitch McConnell was reading Eddie Verdoliak and Eddie Burke's tactics and go, this is what we're going to do. You're absolutely correct. And Obama's like, wait a minute. I did everything I was supposed to do, and they're still treating me like Harold Washington. And... I just don't think it ever sunk in to Axelrod and Rahm and and even Barack Obama that they were unfairly critical of Harold Washington. They did not realize what Harold was up against. Uh, And they thought like the world had changed and it really hadn't changed your thoughts. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, no, totally. Um, I totally agree. I mean, of course, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about um, if, if Mitch and McConnell and other folks are reading right out of the Burke and Verdoliag playbook, I mean, there's one difference is that we're talking Republicans versus Democrats. And, and, you know, one of the arguments I make in the book is this, this is a, this is a debate about what the future of the Democratic Party is going to look like. There's a reason why the cover of the book is blue. Um, this is a, this is a debate about, is it going to be kind of an old school, um, kind of conservative union, uh, and, and it, it's, can it, um, and their allies, uh, uh, based party, uh, where African-Americans might be part of it or voting for it, but not, but, but junior partners at best, are Latinos going to be junior partners at best, or is it going to be a truly multiracial sort of space where, um, yeah. Um, uh, the, the head guy, uh, or, or head gal is going to, is, is, could be African-American or could be Latino. Um, everybody has a, an equal stake, um, in, uh, prioritizing issues, um, and whose experiences matter the most. Uh, but yeah, this fight is, uh, it, it's really fascinating, right? I mean, and, uh, that if you remember in that 83 primary, <clears throat> Ted Kennedy, Walter Mondale, both get involved in the primary um, in, support, in supporting uh, Jane Byrne and, and Richie Daly. Um, and then Mondale, you know, to his credit, then shows up and, and supports um, Harold and the, and the general. Um, but, you know, by that, by, few folks remember that. Uh, uh, it wasn't lost on them that uh, Mondale, the standard bearer, um, former vice president is, uh, uh, goes, uh, pitches his, uh, his hat in for, um, for daily. Uh, what's interesting, it, it's, if you remember, um, burn, like, go, you know, she loses in the primary, goes on vacation, comes back and tries to do, a, <laughs> tries to run as a write-in. Um, and, Kennedy was like, absolutely, that's ridiculous. You need to like, just, you need to support the Democratic nominee who is Harold Washington. But again, these national figures, you know, uh, got involved and were on the wrong side. Uh, and Jesse Jackson sees uh, the success of, of Harold um, and, uh, uh, you know, ends up running uh, two multiracial success, you know, in many ways successful campaigns for president in terms of exceeding expectations, getting issues out on the, uh, you know, into the discourse or the conversation that wouldn't have otherwise been there. Um, and so Chicago becomes kind of this microcosm for what's going on nationally in terms of at least what the Democratic Party is doing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I just want to make sure that 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 gets out there as well. But you, you, you're you're absolutely right that um, you know Harold is very explicit about um, African Americans deserve more jobs and contracts. Um, but he also talks about fairness, right? I mean, if you look at his his speeches, he he's like, we're going to be fair to everybody. This is not about flipping the script and and we're going to treat white folks like you. You know, white folks have been treating us for. Uh, uh, 300 years in this, uh, this country. Um, but it was definitely about um, a fair distribution of resources and energy in the city, which is the first time I had really seen Absolutely. that. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Can't accentuate that enough. And that gets back to what I said about how pathetic uh, white voters were in 87. Uh, he spent four years being as fair as you could be. Uh, and despite the fact there were some people, uh, black politicians in Chicago, and don't be fair. <laughs> you know, we want more of the jobs. Uh, and he was so fair. Uh, and uh, you do. You talk about it in a book, but there's the, the initiative, the bonding initiative to fix up the streets and the sidewalks, et cetera. And he made sure every neighborhood got its fair. He was so fair. And that just underscores Helen Schiller, older woman, Helen Schiller, former older woman, Helen Schiller, a mother of Brendan Schiller, a guest on the show, frequent guest on the show. Uh, her point that what do you got to do? Come on, white people. Give me a break. God you, know, you guys are hard. Uh, I. Uh, it's curious the, if you have, you spent, how, I think you told me 12 years, did you say that, working on this book? This was a major. Something about, oh, yeah. So uh, who are some of the, the more uh, colorful or interesting or uh, fascinating people you got to meet or interview or learn about uh, Chicagoans uh, uh, from writing this book? Yeah, good question. I mean, I, so I did, you know, I did a number of oral histories. I, I, you could always do more oral histories is what I realized. And so that's what if folks ask me, oh, do you have a regret? I'm like, oh, I should have I should talk to even more people than I did. Um, but uh, but, you know, some folks, some key folks had passed away or or just w weren't like in good enough shape to, to really remember the era anymore. And, uh, but so, you know, Helen, of course, is a great, is a, is, is a, a great person to sit down with and, and, and because she, she was an activist for so many years before. Um, and, uh, you know, there's also a lot of her entire run of magazines keep strong from the seventies is in the Harold Washington library reference co uh, collection, which is a really interesting source to take a look at if you're ever writing about Chicago in the seventies. And uh, because while it was based in uptown, it really wasn't just about uptown. It was about the entire city and how the machine ran things uh, and the, and the opposition to it and the, and the multiracial opposition to it. Right. You know, uh, um, if you're working class, um, uh, it often was not working for you, uh, the city. Um, Chewy Garcia, uh, Bob Starks, uh, Brunetta Halbert was a really uh, lovely person to interview. Jackie Grimshaw, um, uh, Nina Torres, you know, who was uh, head of the um, Mayor's Advisory Commission on, on Latino Affairs and then a uh, professor for a long time at UIC, Dick Simpson. Um, you know, so all, it, so I, you know, I, I chatted with a, a good number of folks, um, uh, you know, the members, so I, ch I, I talked with Chewy before he became a member of Congress. Um, it was harder to get in to, to hear from Bobby Rush and, and Danny Davis. Uh, um, but, uh, you know, there's, um, you know, the good thing, and I'll, I'll make a pitch for the history makers, uh, archive uh, of oral histories, um, which I think is now under the Library of Congress, um, but you know was started in Chicago. And while it does, it has oral histories of the Black experience throughout the country. It is uh, Chicago centric in terms of um, its origins, and so it, it there's a lot of good oral histories there of Lou Palmer and, and Conrad Worrell and uh, many other folks uh, that I didn't have a chance to chat with um, that I drew from. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are so, 
there's so many characters that you could uh, you could you could talk about. Um, I'm trying to think of who. I mean, I find, and so this is, we're going to probably disagree about this. I find Jane Byrne fascinating as a figure, um, not in a sympathetic way. Um, although in, in one small way, I, I, I will say that um, as terrible as she was um, uh, as a mayor, um, I do think, and this was particularly, I think the, the daily campaign was particularly guilty of this is the remarkable sexism that she faced as a chief executive, as that most female uh, executives face and politicians face. Um, and while I don't think that that, you know, means that she should have uh, won a re-election or it excuses her own racism and her own um, kind of incompetence uh, in running the city for four years from 79 to 83, I I did think that that needed to be highlighted. And I found like, you know, all the stories about her and like the, <laughs> go, you know, living uh, in Cabrini Green, you know, for th however long she did for three weeks and uh, some of the other antics that she had just, I, I found, I found her just to be a fascinating figure, political figure um, to write about and to read about. Um, again, I don't want it to sound like I'm some kind of uh, burn defender because that, uh, is not the case, but I thought she was more complicated um, and had a more complicated experience than we sometimes see in the existing scholarship and, and narratives about that time. I, uh, I'm not going to disagree with you at all. I'm going to wholeheartedly agree with you. Uh, I lived briefly in Chicago uh, around in the winter. Oh, God help us all. It's coming back, the memory. Uh, the winter of January of uh, and February of 79. Uh, and then it all began with New Year's snowfall. Any baby boomer out there knows, can remember what I'm talking about. It was just absolutely god-awful moment uh, in, in Chicago history. Uh, I don't know if we'll ever have a moment like that, uh, thanks to climate change. We haven't had a brutal winter in a while, but that was a real brutal winter. Hey, youngsters, you don't know what it's like, you millennials of disease out there. You don't know what it's like to live through a Chicago winter. I'm going to tell you right now. huh? Uh, anyway, and so I remember when Jane Byrne defeated Michael Bolanek in uh, February of 79 in the Democratic primary, a stunning upset, largely thanks to uh, black voters in the city of Chicago. And... Uh, I, how jubilant I was. I just, to me, that was like a crowning glorious moment uh, in um, democratic politics that there was like Democrats were taking charge of their own, just ordinary democratic voters were taking charge of their future and they were empowering themselves and they go, no, you know, that's just another thing that people in Chicago do. They just like, there's a central drumbeat that comes from the business community and the downtown elites and mainstream Chicago. And this is what you have to do because it's the right thing. It's the grown up thing. It's the responsible thing. And so Chicago said, no, we're not going to vote for Bolanic. It's terrible. And they voted for Jane Byrne. And it was like, they're like a first time I'd ever seen Chicago's, Gordon, follow me. It was the first time I ever seen Chicago's act rationally in politics. Think about what I'm saying. It's like irrational 
to tolerate a government that, like, for instance, takes your parking meters and sells them for a fraction of what they're worth. To go and support that government is irrational behavior. That's what Chicagoans do. But they're irrational human beings. They just put their full faith in these mayors with all this power, do whatever they want, and have no accountability. But in 79, there was accountability. So the fact that Jane Byrne was able to be the champion of that movement the fact that she could kind of like speak to it and represent it uh tag team with don rose shout out don rose who was the campaign manager gordon i'm with you 100 percent. she's she's the second greatest mayor we've ever had in the city of Chicago. we haven't had a lot of great mayors <laughs> gordon i'm not sure not i would like, agree with that <laughs> i have to think about that <laughs> yeah i mean I, I think she's the second greatest mayor in the city of Chicago. There, I said it. Wait, that could be a whole other show. Gordon Ben debate greatest mayor of Chicago. We agree on Harold is number one. Now, who's number two? Um, I think she got slick. She got too slick. And you could comment on this because you wrote about it. I think she got too slick. She did, went to Cabrini Green, the the old public uh, high rise complex, to show sympathy. Uh, lived there for a couple of weeks, three weeks. I don't know what it was. Uh, and then figure, okay, I just got the black vote sewed up. Now I'm going to get the white vote sewed up because I'm, I'm worried about daily. And she put a bunch of uh, racists on the school board. So she thought, oh, I could just get the black vote because I went to Cabrini Green. It doesn't matter who I appoint. Once again, underestimating the intelligence of Chicago. And she's figured like the only thing black people cared about was her going to Cabrini Green. They weren't going to care about who she appointed to the CHA to school board. So she, that, that's a, that's a, tendency in chicago politics get to the politicians think they're slick and they the, the people they, they they under they really underestimate the intelligence of the voters i can see why they do to a certain degree but you go too far you pay for it so that is kind of my view of jane byrne uh which i think probably more in agreement with yours uh than you you realize what do you think yeah yeah no i um I, I'm definitely not going to agree with Jane Byrne being the second best mayor in Chicago history. I'd have to, I have to think, I have to think long and hard about who that. It might be some kind of progressive reformer from the early uh, the early 20th century or late 19th century that would show up um, as the second. I throw best my hands up. I'm only going back to 55. How about if we just okay. go back to 55? Okay. So there's like, yeah, if it, of the six people to choose from, then you know, possibly, but. Again, I'm hoping that Bra I'm hoping Brandon actually uh, rolls in at, at number two there at least. Um, no, no. I mean, I think that well, one wonders like if Jane actually really expected to win because then she didn't really know. Oh my God, I don't actually know how to run the city, um, and I'm going to have to go uh, get back into um, uh, into partnership with the folks that I just ran against. Which of course is, I mean, and that's that. That was the whiplash that Tim Black and you know many people uh, experienced, and they're like, "Wait a minute! I thought you were the I, I you know I thought you were the anti machine candidate. I can't believe you're in, embracing the machine, you know, uh, just days after you win the primary." Um, and so that uh, that betrayal, I think, is it's it's pretty deep seated. Uh, Lou Palmer and other, you know, we're we're pretty articulate about okay, they all the the insults from that administration, right? So I don't want to I don't want to sugarcoat the Byrne administration, but I do think that she um, uh, just the 
just just the sexist stuff that came out of the daily machine or the daily um campaign in 83 against her um ignoring because i think they're they're ignoring harold they don't think harold's a contender um that changes with the debates in the in january um late january uh, when he runs around both of them in terms of his knowledge of policy. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, but, uh, but uh, before then, you know, um, I think he was even the early leader in the polls uh, daily. And then he, they, he saw the, um, his campaign folks saw her as the main opponent. And so, yeah, they were, you know, uh, making comments about, um menstrual cycles and all kinds of other things that, that, you know, are completely out of bounds, but, but pretty typical coming from male politicians toward female politicians. And, uh, and then she does a remake or she kind of remakes herself and changes the dresses that she's wearing and she gets a new hairstyle and all thanks to a New York, like a political consultant who comes in to try to create the new Jane. Um, but of course, you know, again, it's like that, the only equivalent I could think of, of was when um, Rom in the re-election re campaign doesn't he put on a sweater? Um, Chicago, it may have been your lowest moment uh, as a voting population. Chicago, yes, Rom put on the sweater. Goes, I've changed or whatever. Then Obama goes, he's a little rough around the edges, but he's my guy. And Chicago goes, oh, we'll vote for him. We're not that bright. All right. Uh, the name of the book is The Multiracial Promise, Harold Washington's Chicago and the Democratic Struggle in Reagan's America. Gordon K. Mantler, M-A-N-T-L-E-R. I urge you to all go buy it. Uh, or if I always say, as I always say in the show, uh, if you're not a book buyer, go to the library. Check it out of the public library. It's not the public library. I'm a big believer in public libraries. Gordon, I do this for every author who comes on the show. I go through the same pitch. I go buy the book. But, you know, it helps the author, too. If you check it out of the library, the more people check it out the more libraries will buy it uh so absolutely uh i'm a big believer in libraries gordon thank you so much uh for coming on the show thank you very much for writing the book uh, thank you for contribution to chicago all right very good that's gordon mantler i'm ben jarofsky take care everybody mm -hmm.